Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Finding someone on an online Catholic dating site shouldn't be like shopping for a blender. So why do most dating sites leave you feeling like you're shopping for a spouse? At Catholic Singles, we connect members through our unique user polls and activities, which help you discover other members and their personalities and interests. Because you're a person, not a profile picture. So stop shopping and start discerning. Trust your love story to the original Catholic dating site and use the promo code BREADBOX at checkout for 20% off at catholicsingles.com. Welcome to the Will Within Podcast. This is your home for shared stories of hope, perseverance, will, and inspiration. Join us today as we share another story that brings to life the underlying beat of our lives. Consider us your virtual friends. Let's get inspired. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Will Within Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Regina Fontes. I want to take the moment before we begin today's episode to thank you again for all of your kind messages and making this podcast a very big success in only just a few episodes. Thank you so much. I feel very blessed. And I'm always willing to listen to you, so please feel free to share your story. Contact me and, and we'll chat. So today's guest, I want to let you know, is a woman from Saigon. She went through the communist takeover of Saigon. She ended up in France, ended up going from there to South Florida, and then she ended up going to Oxford University to Notre Dame and becoming a lawyer for the Supreme Court of Indiana, and then on to becoming a senior producer and journalist. So without any further ado, I want to introduce you to Christine Niles. Welcome, Christine Niles. I'm very excited to have you on the Will Within podcast. You've lived a really full life, so I'd love to hear you talk about it. I want to hear about your faith journey as well. That's how we usually start out. We talk about your faith journey and when you were growing up. So let's start. Sure, yeah. I was born in uh, Saigon, Vietnam in 1974, which was only one year before the communists came, you know, and basically took Saigon. Obviously, I was too young to remember very much about what happened at the time, but it was a very difficult time for my parents because at the time, uh, you know, when the Saigon collapsed to the communists, they had three young children, my siblings, and they had to make the very difficult decision to leave the country. Um, if I don't know if people know very, have studied that the Vietnam War and what happened, but I've about, about a million people, people, yeah, um, about a million people fled Saigon in 75, 76 after they came in. They took everything my family had. Uh, we were a fairly wealthy family. My dad was honorary chairman of a bank. He was a respected civil engineer. You know, my mother comes from also a family of wealth. My grandmother had owned a jewelry store. And so we had some money. And of course, the communists came in and they took everything that we had, ostensibly to distribute it to others. But, you know, I think I have a feeling they kept it for themselves. Can I and, ask you a question, Christine? Mm -hmm. Was this a slow roll? Did this happen over a few years in Saigon? And then finally they switched over the year right after you left or? They, you know, this was in the middle of the war and the U.S. was there. And in 75, they just kind of swooped in okay. and Saigon right. collapsed under their rule. And so many people fled. Uh, many people became boat people, refugees. And we, you know, had to leave the country. And we were very fortunate because my 
grandfather was a colonel in the French army stationed in Vietnam back mm-hmm. when it was known as Indochina, yep. back when it was uh, basically uh, you know occupied by France. And that's when he met my grandmother on my mother's side. And so they got married. His French citizenship passed down through my mother to us, the children. And so that was essentially our ticket to freedom. It was our oh French God. citizenship yeah. that allowed the government to let us get on a plane and go to France. Uh, but most, uh, just pretty much all of the rest of my relatives, I believe, uh, many of them became boat people and refugees, and they had to endure horrific, horrific um, things in their lives just to escape the country that we were spared. Things that I, I mean, I almost can't even mention because it's so terrible. But um, I can envision it's horrifying. But we were fortunate enough to be able to leave on a plane, go to France. We lived in government housing in France for a couple of years. It was very difficult for my father. He, you know, if you can imagine, he went from being this respected, wealthy civil engineer, chairman of a bank in Vietnam, to driving taxis right. in, in France just to survive. And after a while, after a couple of years struggling there financially, a friend of his said, hey, why don't you go to America? You know, it's a land of opportunity. You can start all over, you know, and so... It was very courageous for my father to just sort of pick up, um, you know, pick up everything with a wife and three young children and almost zero English, by the way, <laughs> and start all over in America. And it was really through the kindness of a man named Mike Ambrose, who he was friends of a friend, and he was willing to take my father into his civil engineering firm and just kind of spend six months showing him the ropes. And at the time, my dad spoke barely any English. He really was, couldn't do very much, you know, but this man was so kind enough to put him on a salary and pay him until he could sort of get up to speed. So that's how my dad sort of rebuilt his career and his life there in Florida. And so he ended he up actually- continue with engineering when he got here? He did. But, but he actually ended up um, starting his own engineering firm, eventually uh-huh. was very successful. And then he put all three of us through college. and. Um, now he's retired. He's doing fine, you know, in Florida. And all three of us have done very well for ourselves. Congratulations. That was a huge feat. It's a miracle. Yes. It's a miracle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God has been very good. Yep. It was difficult. So, tell me about your spiritual journey when you were younger as well, going through all this and how how your faith played a part in it, if it did. Yeah. Vietnam, um, back in the early 20th century, Vietnam had a very flourishing Catholic population. But unfortunately, when the communists came in, they did everything they could to try to persecute Catholics, stamp out the faith to the point now where it's a very small minority in um, Vietnam, which is very sad. But we ourselves were Catholic, but I'd say that our faith was more, it was more culturally Catholic. And so I remember going to mass occasionally, but it was treated more as a social you know, sort of social thing where you went to see your friends, things like that. It wasn't um, anything that we did on a very regular basis. We never prayed the rosary in the home. In fact, I was never taught how to pray, unfortunately. So I never, I didn't really know anything about the faith. In fact, I wasn't even baptized until I was in my teens because my parents didn't really understand the need for the sacraments necessarily. So I didn't understand anything about the faith. And when I was about, I think, believe 16 or so, somewhat rebellious, I grew up on the East Coast of Florida. So I liked to go to the beach a lot, fell into the whole surfing, skateboarding crowd. And I was told about a surfer's Bible study. And I thought, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I get to go get some free food, hang out with other surfers. And so I went 
with some friends. And that was the first time in my life I'd actually heard the gospel. But it was offered by a Protestant pastor, a very good man, very good man. Um, and so I thought, wow. And I, I heard about our Lord for the first time. And it really struck me. And I had a hunger for more. I wanted to learn more about Jesus uh, because I hadn't really heard it before, unfortunately. And, you know, and it might very well have been that when I went to Mass, Vietnamese Mass with my parents, they may have very well obviously been talking about the gospel, but I just didn't understand it because my right. Vietnamese wasn't very good. Right. So this was really the first time for me hearing about the life of our Lord. And I was, I was on fire to learn more. And so I essentially, I guess I said what they call the sinner's prayer. You accept Christ into your heart. You ask the Holy Spirit to come in. And I did experience some kind of conversion because I believe God, he responds to anybody with goodwill. Any person with goodwill who's sincerely seeking the truth, God will respond. Now, I made the mistake of thinking that because I heard it from a Protestant, therefore, Protestantism must be the answer. And so I sort of went over to Protestantism and became essentially a Protestant for about 11 years of my life. Um, so now you're 26, right? Uh, let's see. 26. Actually, I think, I think I, maybe it was, I'm trying to get the, either 16 or 17, but that by the time I was 28, it was actually my third year of Notre Dame Law School. Oh, okay. And that's when I came back to the faith. It was in my third year at Notre Dame Law School. Well, how did you end up at Notre Dame? Because that's uh, a cult, was culturally Catholic. Right. Um, well, I, looking back to me, it was Providence because um, <laughs> I, I had come back from Oxford University. I was trying to look for what I was going to do in the future. I initially thought I was going to do a PhD in philosophy. and then, uh, But then I sat down one evening. I was watching a show on um, attorneys helping inno uh, innocent clients get out of prison and it really struck me. I thought, wow, this is what I should be doing. I should be doing law because it's a perfect blend of, you know, intellectual, uh, which I've always needed. But at the same time, you're able to apply your intellectual skills in a hands-on, concrete way to help people. And so I thought, okay, so I, I applied to various different law schools. Notre Dame was on the list. And it just ended up that Notre Dame offered me the biggest scholarship. And at the time, I had no money. So I thought, okay, well, that, there you go. No brainer. You were in Florida then? No, I had. Um, I was living in Indiana at the time. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't too far. Um, and so I went there, ended up going there. And to be honest, it was the first time in my life because the Notre Dame Law School, the law school itself is actually, at the time I went, is much more devout and much more conservative than the rest of the campus. I mean, we hear about all sorts of craziness going on at Notre Dame. Some of the different departments can be different from the rest of the campus. So when I went there, I, there was a very good crop of devout practicing Catholic professors and devout Catholic uh, practicing students. And some of these people were my friends. And so seeing their witness day in and day out, living out the faith, it was the first time I'd actually ever seen genuine Catholics living out the faith. Which I had agree with you because when I was in the 90s, I was taking an undergraduate, I was taking a graduate course there, there for the summer. And oh, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I love the campus, but some of the philosophy people were out in left field back then. This was back in the mid nineties. But like you said, the off campus graduate people were fabulous to chat with. Right. right. Yeah. So what year, what year was that? Do you think that you were in that area? I graduated in 2003. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was about 10 years earlier than you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. But, you know, never, never, um, you know, as Catholics, never minimize the 
power of your witness, the witness yes. of your daily life, because that's really what helped to bring me back was just day in, day out for three years, seeing Catholics practice and live the faith and really defend it vigorously. That really struck me. You're bringing up a good point because when I was in the early 90s, while I was going to undergraduate in LA, I worked at E! Entertainment Television. And when you talk about a cesspool, <laughs> sometimes of people who just were so lost, and I just lived my faith. I didn't proselytize. I didn't have Bible studies and all that stuff. But people would see that you were just a witness right. to what you believed in. And, and, you and know, it's powerful. Based. Yeah. And I would have people come to me all the time. I even had one girl who sadly had, had terminated her pregnancy. And then she was distraught and I was able to get her help. Hmm. You know, and it was it's just a powerful thing to be able to help somebody. So, you know what I mean? We have to be witnesses to each other and be there and support. Right. And you know what? People are watching even when you don't know they're watching. They're yes. observing even when you, so just be that faithful witness. I also have to credit the Blessed Mother because I started, um, I, I was involved in the pro-life group at Notre Dame and at the law school anyway. And every Friday we would pray outside an abortion mill. As a, I was a Protestant at the time, but Catholics, you know, were the ones who organized this. And so we would just go there and we would just pray the rosary standing outside the abortion mill. That's all we so do. So it was we the Protestants that taught you the rosary. So, uh, yeah, as a Protestant, <laughs> it was my first exposure to the rosary. That's what I, I mean, remember. Yeah, yeah I, I remember at first I was hesitant. I thought, okay, I don't know. Because, you know, you hear that, that Catholics worship Mary. Yeah, and so I was looking at the prayer. I'm like, okay, I have to make sure I'm not worshiping Mary. And I read through the prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. That's biblical. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mm. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. I read through that. I thought, okay, well, there's no worship going on here. We're just asking her to pray. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, as a Protestant, I thought, okay, so I'll join in on the prayers. And literally, <laughs> probably maybe one or two months after I started praying the rosary, I was a Catholic. Wow. <laughs> I, I know, wow. I know their lady That's had everything work, to do with it. I know. <laughs> she had everything to do. I'm sure of it. Just praying That's that amazing. prayer. <laughs> well, think about it. I mean, people are saying, you know, school is return. It's going to be. And I say to them, will you tell me what the, the angel said to Mary? And they start and they go, wait a minute. I'm like, and what are the words to Hail Mary full gra Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. right, you know what I mean? So they yeah. start to say to themselves, oh, my God, I, what am I doing here? What's happening? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So mm -hmm. tell me how you, what did you do after that um, in terms of work? You know, I went to work on the Indiana Supreme Court as a law clerk. Oh. And that was very interesting because That's my, from law school to the, to the, to the court. That court? Yes. Supreme yeah. Indiana wow. Supreme Court. And um, that was actually an interesting time because the justice that I worked for was actually a pro-abortion black Democrat. Oh my God. <laughs> here I was a totally conservative yeah, right. pro-life, you know, no, but it's good because you're balancing them off. You're giving him information. I'm yeah. Sure and good for him for being willing yeah. to hire me. Cause he wasn't, he really wasn't a partisan hack. He was, and you can't be like that as a judge anyway, you're supposed to be impartial. Right. And he was more interested in my, um, my legal abilities. I had, I guess a good track record coming from Notre Dame and he thought I was a good researcher and writer. And so, you know, he hired me on. And what's really interesting is I was there and this was the very last case that I left. You know, after two years, you spend two years as a law clerk. This was the very last case that I was on. It was the most important abortion case in Indiana 
in Indiana history. And they essentially had to decide whether or not Indiana was going to read a right to abortion into the Indiana Constitution. Huge. It would have had huge ramifications for abortion in the state of Indiana. And so the court was split. You know, behind the scenes, you had, um, you know, a couple who were totally pro-abortion arguing that, yes, you know, we need our own Roe v. Wade. We need to, you know, read abortion into the Constitution of the Indiana state, even though it said nothing about it. But then you had another faction, which is the total opposite, saying, no, there's no right to abortion in the state constitution. And then my justice was in the middle. He was undecided. Robert. And, uh, I, I, totally. <laughs> and so I was tasked with the, do, you know, the job of doing the research for him, putting together a memo so he could figure out wh- which way he was going to go. How and, many of you uh, were there helping him? Writing that. Uh, there are two. There are two clerks. Okay. There's a senior clerk and there's a junior clerk. Was so that, that individual year, was pro abortion, pro choice, or pro life? Was that person pro choice or pro life? He really he was pro life, but he he was pro life, but he was not involved in the in researching the case. I was the okay. main lead oh, okay. clerk. I get you. Okay. And thanks be to God, you know, I was able to put together a convincing enough memo that it it, it found kind of a middle road. That um, I mean, it wasn't ideal. You know, I would have preferred to to say no, absolutely no right to abortion in the Constitution, but I already knew my justice wouldn't, you know, sign on to that. Yeah. And so I was able to craft a memo that sort of was both sides were able to adopt it. And it essentially um, I don't want to get too much into the, to, to the technical legal weeds of all this. Yeah, but you'd essentially, lose me. <laughs> it, it, it essentially was able to take the case off the table and. Um, have they really it ended up being a victory sense? essentially it was it ended up being a pro life victory because there was no right read into the oh, good. State constitution Excellent. just just to be nosy have they changed since they have not since no. really no. well good for you yeah so good to see talk you, about, talk about leaving with a bang you know yeah, no <laughs> that was kidding. a huge case so, so thanks me, to god what is the process of going from a, a law clerk for the supreme court to a journalist I never ever expected reporter. I know. (laughs) I can tell you at the time. I mean, I never expected it, and it's it's amazing the things that God does in your life that you absolutely never predict. I never would have predicted, you know, a decade ago that I'd be sitting here doing this. Nor was it ever in my sights. But so I had my had children. I had my first child towards the end of my clerkship, and I decided, you know, I don't want to go work in law because that means I'm going to be away from my child and I want to be home with my child. And so I decided to work from home for a while. And so I was teaching law online, raising my kids, um, and then also switched over to copy editing because my I have a background in writing as well. And so I helped a few people publish their books. So I was just basically working, I was a mother working from home. Mm-hmm. And then um, this is a very funny story and people always laugh when I tell them that. They say, so how do you, you know, come to know Michael Voris? How do you come to work at Church Militant? And I didn't come to work there until 2014, but here's the funny thing. I first heard about Michael in about 2008 or 2009. I can't remember. Whenever he started the Vortex, that's when I first heard about him. And the way I heard about him was an email popped up in my inbox, you know, with the video of Michael in the Vortex. I'd never heard of this guy before. I didn't know where the email came from. It just popped up. I remember clicking on it watching about 30 seconds and thinking, oh, this is just another political talking head. I have no interest. 
Yeah, I had the <laughs> same just... reaction, to be honest <laughs> with you. I was like, who is this guy? And why is he like so damn nasty and critical? <laughs> I mean, I could, it was like, wait a minute. I said, and I kept listening. I said, well, he's making some good points, but yeah. really, he's kind of nasty. And then I started, <laughs> eventually like the guy. I was like, this is awesome. A lot of people have that initial reaction to Michael. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny because, you know, the first time I heard him, I was not impressed at all. I was just like, uh, you know, this is whatever. I'm not interested. And then I kept getting these um, vortex. How did you get on the mailing list? How is that possible? That's the thing. Here's the blessed uh, mother again. (laughs) And so I remember I kept getting these um, vortexes. And I, at at one point I wrote to Church Milton. At the time they were known as Real Catholic TV. And I remember writing to them saying, you know what? I don't know how I ended up on this emailing list, but take me off now. I don't want to get your emails anymore. (laughs) So I never heard from them again for like two years, two or three years. Um, and then until I saw another vortex and I saw people kind of attacking Michael Voris online. And I remember at the time taking a closer look and thinking, you know what, I, you know, I might not like the way Voris says things, but I agree with everything he's saying. You know, he's totally What does bright. that sound like from right now? In the times that we're in right now, I don't really like what he say, how he says it sometimes, but oh, I well, agree I've changed. with him. No, I'm <laughs> saying, isn't that what we're hearing right now? I always say, you know... You don't don't dispel the messenger just because you don't like the wording he's using sometimes. Right. Listen to the right. meaning of what he's trying to right. look at the actions of what the person tries to do in this. Right. Life. And also I've come around to actually um liking the yeah, way he, he delivers like really things. Because nice I understand character. the outrage at this. I understand the outrage at this he, point. Like, like and he I said just one thing I I remember seeing, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but he said, I didn't no. start this thing for this. This came exactly. upon me. Same exactly. kind of thing of what we're going through right now. We didn't ask for this. It was just all right. of a sudden thrust upon us. Political right, and he never wanted to do this. He never wanted to do it. He started the apostolate simply because he was so overjoyed about learning the truth about Catholicism, and all he wanted to do was share the beauties and glories of the faith with others, which is why if you look at our premium content, you see it's, it's catechesis, it's philosophy, it's history, it's theology, mm. it's apologetics. Yeah. These are all the things that he loves to do, and it's what he wanted to do. But it was in 2009 when Notre Dame gave that honorary doctorate to Obama yes. and invited him on campus, right. and he was right. so scandalized because, you know, that's his alma mater. You know, he loves Notre Dame, and he couldn't believe. He was standing on the campus crying, that you know, and he just couldn't believe that this was happening and that there's so many bishops were refusing to speak out about it. And that's when he realized, wow, there's something really wrong inside the church today that this could be allowed to happen. And that was kind of his turning point in 2009. And that's when he started focusing more on the problems inside the church. So like I remember him saying in one report that he did, he was away from the church himself and, and yes. his mother continually praying brought him back to the church. So obviously he was a person dedicated to the church. I, like me, to be honest with you, I am not a trad. I, don't, I never even knew what that meant till about like um, a year ago because I grew up in Nova Soto. I was always a little uncomfortable with it. You know, these people flitzing up and down the aisle, dancing around, taking the host away from the priest when they're going to you know, reach out to give it to him and then go back again. I'm like, what's going on? Give him the damn thing. <laughs> but because uh, I was a cantor, I've been a cantor. I used to do liturgical stuff for Los Angeles and Boston, the Archdiocese. Uh-huh. So I was pretty well known and I I would get annoyed. I would get annoyed at the stuff that was happening at the North, happening at the North Soto. So sure. when all this stuff started happening, getting progressively worse to about two years ago, I was like, you know what? I, I'm not a trap, but 
let people worship the way they want to worship. Don't deny people being able to take the host in their mouth if they want it. Simple things like that. It makes no sense to be right. arguing with people and fighting with them about their faith. Don't try to knock into my brain that I need to accept X, Y, and Z. Right. Or you don't think I'm Catholic. Right. Don't tell me that I'm not Catholic because I believe in legal immigration. Right. These things drive me crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. I try to be sympathetic. I try to be empathetic. But don't push me over the edge. I used to say to somebody not too long ago, don't make me become a trash. Don't make me go that way. Right. I'm not that way. I'm just trying to be as nice and, and helpful as possible to whoever wants to believe that they believe. At the end of the day, it's not my decision if you get into heaven. It's God's. Right. And I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you on your journey, your spiritual journey. But don't try to thrust all this stuff on me to begin with. Right. You leave me alone. I'll leave mm-hmm. you alone. The old adage. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what has been some of the? I know you've got uh, this SS. I don't know if this Halibut started. What is it? SSPX? I don't even know the acronyms for these things. But there was mm-hmm. a, one of your investigative reports went into something about, which I think is good, the fact that you're exposing people who are abusing children. I don't care if it's drugs. I don't care if it's Nova Soto. I mean, I don't care. We need to yeah, win and people, people out care. of the church. Right. right. It should, so, people shouldn't care. How did you come along that story? Tell us well, about the journey with that story. Well, my track record in the past has been exposing sex abuse and corruption as investigative reporter inside the wider church. You know, I've covered New York. I've covered California, Chicago, the Vatican. I'm in Boston. Yeah, Yeah, Boston. Um, So I've I've been doing that this for years, just exposing corruption um, in the wider church. And earlier this year, a woman named Jassy Jacobs published a Facebook post that was pretty surprising. She said that Essentially, there's a cover-up going on inside the Society of St. Pius X, the SSPX, which is traditional priestly order. They offer traditional liturgy. Um, and How long ago was I, this? This was just in January when she came out with it. And so oh, I see it. Okay. Yeah, so I just... see that No one's really looked at the SSPX. I mean, we've okay. looked at bishops in, in the church all over the place. No one has really looked at the SSPX with regard to sex abuse. Nobody's ever really talked about nothing. They've kind of flown under the radar. And so I reached out to this person, this whistleblower, Jassy, and that's when I started learning, wow, there's there's a lot here. There's a lot here. Uh, she had her own, she was trying to expose her own cover-up of a priest named Father Pierre Duverger, who is an, a, a, an accused sexual predator. And I have since learned that he had a rape allegation more than a decade ago, going all the way back to France. And that was very quickly hushed up. He was actually given a promotion. He came over here to the United States and then he preyed on other young women, just like he did in France. And again, this is not something that's being talked about in the SSPX. It's not even something that's being acknowledged. And so I, what's interesting is when I aired my spotlight on April 22nd this year, covering a lot of the sex abuse and cover up inside the Society of St. Pius X, my intention was just to do that one report on them and move on, yeah. you know, because I have multiple investigations involving lots of dioceses. And we take one was... bit of a break for a second. How big sure. is SSPX in relationship to the church as a whole? 10%, 5%, 2%? Oh, it's very small. I mean, they have about 600 priests total around the world. Oh, that's it? I'd say okay. about a million followers. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a small. So 1.2 billion. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's a small group, but it's powerful. It's wealthy. It's influential. 
you know, it has uh, some big names supporting it and backing it. But when I aired that spotlight, I was, so many victims reached out to me. So many people called me from all over the world saying, well, this is happening here as well. And, you know, so many of them were relieved because they thought, oh my gosh, I, I thought I was the only person, you know, I, I've been shamed. I've been blamed as a victim. I thought that was, I was the only one. And I realized, wow, this is so much bigger than I ever thought. And then the backlash I got from SSPX I don't defenders. understand that. I, and that's when you really hit me. I mean, I used to, I would watch this stuff daily anyway. I stopped my day like that. But in terms of people like attacking you on Twitter, I'm saying, are you for pedophiles? What, what, what's exactly. going on here? You're either, exactly. you're either for people exposing people that are abusing children. Okay, they call him, now they call, we used to be called Nambla. Remember Nambla years ago? Yes. Now all of a sudden it's MAPS. I was, two weeks ago, I was like, what's a map? They said, mm -hmm. minor attractive person. I'm like, what's going on here? You get all these different acronyms for things, and you, and they, that's how they fly under the radar. So, yeah, okay, you're an SSPX, P, whatever it is, map. I, I, I don't understand why people are mad at you because you're exposing a person that's abusing a child. Regardless it's shooting the messenger. Mean. Yeah, it's shooting the messenger. It's because... I hate to say this, but some of these people have set up the SSPX as their God and they cannot see their God's fall. And so they're going to shoot the messenger rather than ever accept that these men whom they've held in such high esteem could ever be guilty of such guilt. They will not accept that. Now, granted, a lot of people who, who used to be SSPX have, have left or, you know, they've, so some people have, in fact, a number of people have, in fact, thanked me. But especially victims, you know, they've thanked me saying, thank you so yes, much for exposing I, this. I thought I was the only one because they're attacked too. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God you were there. Where does somebody that is uh, such a conservative tribe go? Because they're not going to go to the Novus Ordo. Do they just leave the church entirely? Well, there are other traditional orders that are in oh, option. Okay. For instance, the FSSP. Okay. The, yeah, Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. They're very good, and they're in full communion with the church. Are they the um, same kind of, in size-wise, are they the same kind as the Um, I'm not sure what their size is. I'm not, I don't think they're quite as big as the SSPX. Um, because the FSSP actually started, they, they're, they broke off from the SSPX. Um, okay. okay. Yeah. So enough um, of that. I just want to say thank you for exposing that. I don't care who the order is. I, I think you did a fabulous job and thank I'm you. lucky. I'm, I'm blessed and I'm happy that the people are reaching out to you so, you, so yeah. you can help them along the way. Right. Cause this is huge. This is amazing. And I get very disgusted when I hear, Bishop, back in the day, Bishop Law or anybody else going up the ranks, even to Francis, you know, who is allowing mm -hmm. this, these things to happen. I, I look at this, I say, you know, my old adage years ago when I had a lot of priest friends, obviously, I was like, my faith is in God. If it was new, I'd be long gone. I'd be long right. gone. You wouldn't even know my name. You wouldn't even see that I existed. I wouldn't be around right. you. I said, that's not the point. The point is the Almighty Savior. And that's what we need to focus on, not just the individual wearing the collar or wearing the white suit. It just doesn't work that way. Exactly. They can be the representative exactly. and they should be. But, you know, what is the, I don't, I don't want to attribute it to St. Kristen because I'm not exactly sure if it's him or not. But what about, the, what about that old saying about the, uh, the skulls of uh, priests are lining hell and the right. bishops? I think that's bishops skulls are lining. Yeah, I thought so too, mm -hmm. but then I read some places that that wasn't accurate. So I don't okay. want to give him credence to that. If you know what I mean, I don't want right. to say negative things. To right, him. the yeah. floor of hell. The floor of hell is paved with the skulls of bishops and priests. 
Right. Every and the, you know, the skulls of the priests and it's lining with the, the lampposts of bishops. Right. Skulls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is not a joke, guys. You want to make a vow to this? You better stick to it. This is, this is not a game exactly. that we played in this world. I remember when I did a first mass for somebody, I really shouldn't say this, but I remember uh, two days before I, we practiced his first mass and we went out for some coffee afterwards and he said, just think, in two days I'll be retired. I was like, excuse me? I mean, he went into this whole mindset like he was going to be taken care of because there was a lady in the church that was going to cook his meals and somebody else to do his laundry. And, and, and one of the other priests was upset that he had to pray the rosary with the, with the pastor. I'm like, I, do you have you lost all perspective here? And it just got, it got progressively worse wow. in the early 2000s. I was like, what's happening? So just treating here? it like it's a job. Yeah. Um, so hopefully yeah. things will start to change around. I mean, where do you see the church going to be honest with you? What is your perception of what's happening? Is there going to be a real honestly? It's really hard. Schism? What's it's hard to say. Well, yeah, you know, there was some hope in 2018 after the summer of shame, after Cardinal Lecaric was exposed yes, as a homosexual predator. Now, this is something that we've been we've been banging this drum for years. I mean, Church Melton was kind of almost a lone voice in the wilderness saying, "Hey, there's a problem in the church: homosexual infiltration of clergy. We need to address this." We we said McCarrick was a predator. Um, long, you know, long before other people were saying it. And then finally, it comes out in the public that McCarrick was indeed a predator. Not just that, that there was a whole ring right. of complicit clergy who were protecting him and silencing, even at, I mean, uh, protecting him and remaining silent, even at the highest levels. And that was a huge eye-opener for so many Catholics mm-hmm. who, you know, they became red-pilled. And it was really interesting because we had so many people write church militant at that time saying, apologizing to us and saying, you know what? I used to think you guys were a bunch of kooks and conspiracy, conspiracy theorists, but you guys have been vindicated. And I'm sorry for thinking that about you. And so we got so many more followers who realized, wow, Church Milton's kind of been right all yep, along. Yep. I get angry so, when the bishops all attack you guys. I'm like, wait a minute. First of all, they have the right to their own opinion. I mean, you're not controlling my thoughts. I can listen to these individuals. I can listen to you as well. I can decide who I want to listen to, but right. they're like so against, they're vehemently um, against. Well, they don't like the fact that we criticize them and expose yes. them. They right. can't stand that. So there was some hope. There was a glimmer of hope at that time because we were beginning to think, okay, well, more Catholics are coming on board. The bishops, uh, you know, are having to be made accountable for this. And we were hoping that there'd be some sort of change in the church because of this. And unfortunately, you know, <laughs> There may have been a lot of apologies and a lot of, you know, oh, we're sorry and you know, we'll do better. But I feel like things have just come back to business as normal with a lot of these men. I am so sad that it's so political now. It's just all so political, all these games. Just all trying to get to heaven. Give people a break. Follow the truth and what Jesus Christ set out for us to, the example he set out for us to be. Let's not have all this division. Let's Mm -hmm. get back to the real degree. So tell me, I know that we've been talking a little while and I know that you're schedule is tight so give me one last my one last question to you is give me your life's motto my life's motto um actually love god love god with all your heart simple and all the rest love will it. follow yeah love god <laughs> really period. love god Two with words. all your heart and all the rest will follow <laughs> oh i love it um yeah. so tell me how do people get in touch with you if they want to chat with you or do you have a website do you have any yeah. other contact information that you'd like Just to go share? to Sure, just go to churchmilitant.com 
churchmilitant.com. That's where all of our content is. You'll see my daily headlines. We also do download each day. You'll see my articles, investigative reports. So yeah, churchmilitant.com. When are you going to write a book? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't have any time right now. I have really? no extra time right now. <laughs> I want to so read good. a book of yours. <laughs> I think you get a lot to say. You're excellent. I'd love but, to sit down and write a book. Yeah, there you go. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, and Regina. I, want people to see, I wanted people to see the real you, and you're, you're a delight. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So God bless you. God bless. All right. Take care. Thanks. Many thanks again to Christine for sharing her great insights, and I love her investigative style. I think it's fabulous. So thanks again to Christine, and I want to thank you for all your love and continued support. Please know you're in my prayers always. So until next time, my virtual friends, be blessed. Looking for a way to build daily prayer discipline? Seen the rise in mindfulness meditation, but not sure if it is possible to meditate in a way that's consistent with your Catholic faith? Just looking for a way to breathe new life into your existing prayer routine? No matter what you're looking for, Hollow is here to help. Hollow is a Catholic prayer and meditation app that helps users deepen their relationship with God through audio-guided contemplative prayer sessions. From meditations on the daily gospel to the rosary to daily examines, Hollow has something for everyone. Hollow is the number one Catholic app in the U.S. It is free to download and has permanently free content, but you can also check out all of the premium sessions for 30 days, risk-free, by signing up at www.hollow.com dot app slash breadbox.